Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. That was beautiful. Uh, Paul said something before one of the songs that just struck me, and I just appreciated it so much that we... Of course, we're here to serve the Lord, but part of serving the Lord is serving one another. And I just, I'm so grateful for our worship team and uh, people that are serving in children's ministry, for uh, the stuff that goes on before the service, for the boomers class, for the the class that's going on, equipping parents and uh, just thinking about parenting. I'm just so grateful for you. Uh, I'm thankful to be part of this church. We have our issues and a lot of them are my fault, but uh, I'm just thankful. Man, it's good to be in the house of the Lord, isn't it? All right, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever, amen? Because that's true, because that's true, let's open our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 5. If you're visiting with us for the first time today, we are walking our way through this New Testament letter of Hebrews. We're doing a sermon series through Hebrews, which we are creatively entitling Hebrews. And today we find ourselves in verses 7 through 10 of Hebrews chapter 5. Uh, it's a beautiful text. I'm going to, Lord willing, explain it faithfully in just a second. But as you're finding Hebrews chapter 5, verses 7 through 10, our text for this morning, let me just give you a little heads up. Next week, uh, Robert's going to be preaching a standalone message outside of Hebrews, I think, unless he tries to go back and clean up a mess I made earlier, which would be awkward. But don't, So don't do that, Robert. He's going to preach a standalone message, and uh, I'm going to be away this week. Tomorrow morning, I'm leaving, going to a retreat with some pastors that um, I've known for many, many years, a group of us. We get together every year. We're going to a place called New Mexico, which I think is in the southwestern part of the United States, apparently, they tell me, close to the country of California. I'm looking forward to that, but I'll be gone all week. I'll be back next Sunday, but Robert will be preaching, and then after that, we'll get back into Hebrews. I think our text today is what I would call like a a fundamental of the faith. It it points us to a truth that's a fundamental of the faith. Uh, I think you guys know I love love sports in particular. I I love football, and my dad was a football coach. And you think about the fundamentals, blocking and tackling. You know, that's, that's, no matter how talented you are, if you don't have the fundamentals down, your team is not going to be very good. I think about musicians. Just this past Friday night, I was at a our, our kids' school, they had a performance, and one of the things that was going on is some, some kids from the, from the band were playing, and I was real close to the kids playing their instruments, and they were hitting their notes, and it was just beautiful to see them hitting their notes, and uh, just to know, I don't know a whole lot about music, but I know that just being able to, to play the scale, no matter how good you are, just the notes, being able to hit the notes and read the music and actually, actually play the right notes, as simple as that may be, is fundamental to a piece of music sounding good. And we see that principle in all of life. And today, I think there's a truth embedded in this this chapter as we're working our way through this comparison that the preacher of Hebrews is making. He's basically making, let me zoom out for just a second. The point of Hebrews is, is that Jesus is better than anything that has come before him. In fact, he is what everything that came before him was pointing to. And The audience for Hebrews primarily in its context was first century Jewish Christians in Rome who were tempted because of social persecution or just their own laziness to fall back into what was easier, back into 
the Old Covenant because they were being persecuted for being Christians. And so the writer of Hebrews is comparing Jesus to all of these things that came before him, like the law, like Moses, like this this promised land that ultimately has its fulfillment in Christ. And and now in chapter 5 and in chapter 7 and 8 and a little bit into 9, he's going to be comparing Jesus to the Old Testament priests. And that's what we looked at last week. Remember how clear that sermon was on Melchizedek? Remember that? All you that, that made your way through that? You lived, praise God, you lived through that sermon on Melchizedek last week. That Jesus is a better high priest. And that's the, the, the background of our text this morning. And he's wanting to tell us that if we, if we see what Jesus has done for us, then it will warm our hearts and it will be fuel for the Christian life to, to hold on and to draw near to Jesus. So with that as a background, let me read Hebrews chapter 5, verses 7 through 10, and then I'm going to pray, and then we're going to get into the text. This is what the writer says, picking up verse 7. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Okay, let me pray. And then we're going to get into it. Lord, thank you for this passage. Thank you for, for these four verses. Help us to see the fundamental of the faith in this text, and, and let us live from it. I pray that I would help these people, and that you'd help me, and we pray it all in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, let me give you the outline of what I want to do. There's three parts to this. First is, we're just going to do an explanation of the text. I want to make sure you understand it. Secondly, we're going to look at the importance, the doctrinal importance of the obedience of Christ. And if I could summarize what I think this text is about, it's about the obedience of Christ, what it is, and how it functions in the Christian life. And then thirdly, we're going to just spend a little bit of time briefly thinking about how this helps us, how this truth of the obedience of Christ applies to us. So first, let's look at an explanation of the text. Let's briefly just kind of walk through to make sure we understand what the writer is saying. So he's saying in verse 7, that in the days of Jesus' flesh, he, he offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. So that first part, the days of his flesh, is just referring to his earthly life. And isn't this interesting? Remember, one of the main points of Hebrews is that Jesus is God in the flesh. He is the second person of the Trinity. The, the first chapter of Hebrews talks about how Jesus, he's upholding everything by the word of his power. And yet, if we're going to understand Jesus rightly, correctly, biblically, we understand that he's not just truly God and the son of God, but he's also truly become a man. And this stunning phrase here, he, he offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from, from death. And so when we think about that phrase that Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears, I think our mind immediately, probably and rightly so, goes to the end of the Gospels where Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane and he's praying. He prays this incredible prayer that, that God would let this cup pass 
from him. And he's speaking about clearly what he is about to face in the cross. But I think that what's going on here in verse 7 is that the writer of Hebrews is not merely referring to Jesus in his prayers and supplications and loud cries and tears as merely referring to that one moment in the garden. But in a sense, I think it encompasses all of Jesus's life. In a sense, all of Jesus's life as God in the flesh, truly man, truly God, was in some sense, not completely, but in some sense, a life of prayer, supplication, filled with loud cries and tears. In fact, the prophet Isaiah, hundreds of years before Jesus became a man, prophetically says about Jesus, listen to this, that he was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And so it's not like Jesus' life was just this easy existence, and then towards the end it got really, really serious, and he had to buckle down and win salvation for us. His whole entire life is a life of, of, of prayer, supplication, dependence on God that was filled with loud cries and tears. However, that's not all that the Bible says about Jesus. Let's, not, let's be careful about not having an imbalanced view of Jesus. Although, in a sense, we can say, this is really beautiful, it's really interesting to think about, in a sense, we can say that Jesus, in one sense, is the saddest man that ever lived, we also need to say biblically that Jesus is the, the happiest man that ever lived. Think about Hebrews chapter 12, which we'll get to. It says that for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. And in John chapter 15, this beautiful, uh, beautiful chapter about abiding in him that we looked at when we went through John a few months ago. Jesus says, abide in me to his disciples so that, so that his joy may be ours. And there's this beautiful complexity in Jesus. He's the happiest man who ever lived, but he's also, in a sense, experienced the greatest sorrow, the greatest sadness. And here's this picture of Jesus who is, remember, the comparison that's going on in chapter 5 is that Jesus is our priest. He sympathizes with, sympathizes with us. He knows what it is to be sad and vexed. And Jesus is a picture of that for us. He's the clearest picture that there ever has been of that experience. And then verse, look at the second part of verse 7. It says, and he was heard. This is really interesting. He was heard because of his reverence. What does this mean? It means that God the Father answered the prayers, the prayers with loud cries and tears of the Son. And what does it mean, his reverence? I think that's just another way of saying his, his holiness, his submission or his obedience to God. But here's the interesting thing if you think about it. In what sense did the Father hear the Son and answer his prayer because Jesus did actually die? Think about the prayer. Let's zero in on Gethsemane. Let's zero in on the, the, the garden there before Jesus is crucified. He's actually praying for God to remove the cup from him and God doesn't. So he, he endures the cross the next day. And so in what sense does God hear the prayer of Jesus and answer it in a way that, in a sense, Jesus, as a man, didn't pray for in the garden? Well, the implication clearly is 
is that God heard him and ultimately answered his prayer through the resurrection. He saved him from death, from from the finality of death, and he gave him victory over sin, death, and the grave. And so God did hear Jesus' prayer, but he answered it in a way that Jesus, in a sense, as a man identifying with us, didn't pray for in the garden. Let me just stop and let me just make a little point here. I think this is the, I don't think this is the main point of the text. I think this is the second, third, or fourth level application of this text, but I do think it's really encouraging is that we have this relationship between the Trinity here in the Bible where the Son is praying to the Father in his humanity, his perfect humanity, somehow combined with his perfect divinity, and he's praying for something at the end of his life to be spared from the cross, and God doesn't answer it in exactly the way that Jesus in his humanity prays for it at the end of his life. Have you ever had a prayer answered by God, or have you ever prayed something and it doesn't quite work out, and you're wondering whether or not God is going to be faithful to his word? Well, Jesus has experienced that in some mysterious way, which is mind-blowingly beautiful. But God does answer his prayer, and he spares him from death, and so Jesus is rescued because of his submission to God. And then verse 8, verses 8 and 9, I think, are just the very heart of this text. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. So basically, the first part of that text is he's just saying that because even though Jesus was God the Son, even though he had all the rights to earn everything, he, he didn't need to do anything as God the Son, he became the man, the Son of Man, God the Son in the flesh, and he actually, this is what that phrase, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And remember, we talked about this when we got into Hebrews chapter 2 a few months ago, is that Jesus, is, there wasn't anything incomplete in Jesus, nothing lacking in his character. There was, wasn't something that he had to become because he's God. But in a sense, what the writer of Hebrews is saying in verse 8 is that salvation planned in the mind of the triune God before creation actually had to be accomplished through Jesus actually becoming a man and in a sense experiencing the obedience that he needed to do in order to restore righteousness. So I think that's what that phrase, learned obedience through what he suffered. He actually accomplished it. And because he actually accomplished it, then verse 9, it says, and being made perfect, being made perfect. Again, Jesus is already perfect. So again, he's hitting on the same thought. Not that Jesus had to become something, but he had to, in his incarnation, actually accomplish the perfection, the righteousness, the perfect obedience that would become ours. And being made perfect, here's the conclusion, here's where the heart of this text is, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. So the point that the writer of Hebrews is making, and by the way, he then in verse 10, he says, being designated by God as a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Thankfully, we explained that last week, so we won't get into Melchizedek again. He's basically just saying that Jesus is our king and our priest. He has no beginning and no end. 
kind of like this mysterious figure in the Old Testament who's a type, a shadow of Christ that is coming, who is this royal king priest. What's the point? What's the point of, that the writer of Hebrews is making? If we can see this, this is the fundamental, if we can see this, that because of what Jesus actually did in his life, because of the obedience of Christ, now this is what I want you to really pay attention, because of the obedience of Christ, he has become for us the, the source of eternal salvation. So now we're getting into point two here, the doctrinal importance of Christ's obedience. And if I could boil down the point of this passage into just one sentence, it would be this, is that because of his obedience, because of his obedience, Christ has become the eternal source of our salvation because of his obedience. But here, we got to stop there, put a pin in that word obedience, and now we need to distinguish between two aspects of Christ's obedience that I think if we can see this and if we can understand this and we can hold on to this, I think it will do, it will do, do a spiritual good and empower us to live for God. So I want to distinguish between two aspects of Christ's obedience. Let me just pause here and just say, I think hopefully you're following me up to this point. Here's the point. Because of his obedience, actually in the flesh, not just in heaven, because in one sense, God could have just sent Jesus down in a kind of triumphant, victorious, here I am now, all of you sinners who disobeyed God, stop it and obey me. Anybody, everybody for me? Okay, we're going to heaven. He, he could have done it that way. But he lived a life of humility and obedience, and then he died a sacrificial death on the cross. And the writer of Hebrews is saying all of that is the incarnational life of obedience that Jesus accomplished. And as a result of that, he has become the eternal source of our salvation. So, obedience of Christ absolutely essential to salvation. Let's distinguish between two aspects of the obedience of Christ. Historically, Christians, theologians, have sort of thought of Jesus' obedience in two different aspects. They're all part of the same ball, but two different aspects. First, his active obedience. What do we mean by his active obedience? His, his sinless life, his his actual living, his decisions that he had to make of saying no to sin and yes to God, the, the actual obedience of Jesus in his life, his real life, his real law abiding, the perfection that actually had to happen in time in his life. That's his active obedience. Contrasted with this concept of his Passive obedience, and don't think of that word passive as being like meek and mild and not able to step up and talk. No, think of it as more that passive meaning something's happening to him, and his passive obedience is what we think of more easily. It's his sacrificial death on the cross. It's Jesus laying down his life on the cross to bear the wrath of God and atone for our sin. And when we think of the obedience of Christ, when we think of what Christ has done for us, I think our minds go more easily to the passive obedience of Christ, what he did 
in his death. But here's the point that I want you to get. Don't miss this. There's a relationship between the two. His passive obedience, his dying in our place, was only acceptable because of his active obedience, because of all of the righteousness and obedience that he accrued, the perfection that he accrued through his life, that makes him become, in a sense, the perfect sacrifice for our sins. This is amazing. This is beautiful. It's not just God dying for us. It's the man, Christ Jesus, becoming like us in our flesh, but restoring, retrieving the righteousness that we lost and then laying that down on the cross that satisfies the holiness of God on our behalf. Do you see that? Okay, so let me read you a verse that I think, I think uh, a couple verses, because you might say, well, Brad, this, is, this sort of makes some sense, but give me some Bible, man. Okay, I, I know you were asked that question. I'm going to give you some Bible. So Colossians chapter 2. And by the way, I love this verse. Colossians chapter 2. Um, I know I say that a lot. Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. And you, boy, this verse says a lot about salvation. This verse says a lot about salvation. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. What does that mean? It means all humanity, by nature, we're dead. We're spiritually unable. We are incapable of saving ourselves. What does that phrase the circumcision, the uncircumcision of your flesh mean it's, a, it's an analogy, it's a picture, it's a symbol of the fact that our flesh, our hearts have not been trimmed, they've not been cut away. The flesh, we're living by the flesh in, in disobedience to God, not in obedience to God by the Spirit. So he's basically talking about a person before salvation. We were dead in our trespasses and the uncircumcision of flesh, of your flesh. And now, comma, how does that dead person become a Christian? By trying harder, by gritting their teeth, by making a New Year's resolution, by works that they offer to God in order to be acceptable to Him? No. It says, you who were dead, God made alive together with Him. It's a miracle. That's the new birth. If you're a Christian today, it's not because you first decided to clean yourself up. It's because God first did something that enabled you to make that decision. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us our trespasses. Okay, so how did God forgive us our trespasses? He goes on, verse 14, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Which means, I think this is an analogy of all of the law, the holiness of God that we've all transgressed. We've all disobeyed God. And he has nailed the indictment. He's nailed the accusation. He's nailed it to the cross. He canceled that debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Which means, this is a picture, that Jesus, that God has taken all of the debt, all of the consequence of our sin, and all the punishment that we deserved, and he pins it to the cross, he pins it to Jesus, he puts it on him, and Jesus dies for us. In our place, he takes our sin. Verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing 
over them in him. So that's a picture. Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15, is a picture of the passive obedience of Christ. You see that? Don't think of that word passive like we think again. Think of it as that something that Jesus is bearing. It's happening to him. He's bearing the wrath of God on our behalf, in our place. He is our substitution. But here's the point that you have to see. Here's the connection. But his passive obedience, the reason why his obedience on the cross is acceptable is because of his active obedience. Because of all the holiness as a real man that he stored up and offered in our place. You see that? So let me read to you. You say, give me some Bible. I'm about to give you some Bible. Relax. Okay. Here we go. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For our sake, he made him who him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So what's happening in verse 21 of 2 Corinthians is there's a transaction taking place. Jesus is becoming something on the cross. He's taking our sin. I think that's what's going on in that verse in Colossians. He's, he's getting our sin nailed to him. He's taking the punishment for our sin. But there's another transaction going on there. God said, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21 that we are becoming, we are receiving something from Jesus and it is the righteousness of God. It becomes ours. It's just like our sin is imputed to him, his righteousness is imputed or credited or debited to our accounts. This is what Paul says in Romans chapter 4, verses 4 through 5. He says, now to him who works, or in other words, tries to obey God through their own righteousness, now to him who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. So basically, Paul's saying, here's this system of self-righteousness, and if you think that you can be right before God because of that, all you're going to get is the due the due reward for your righteousness. And oh, by the way, if you read the rest of the Bible, that's not going to go well for you because nobody has enough righteousness for it to pay off well for them. Our righteousness, the prophet says, is as filthy rags before God. Verse 5, though, but or and to the one who does not work, in other words, has no good deeds to commend themselves, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted or imputed or credited as righteousness. So what's going on there? Let me put these things together. Jesus dies on the cross. He stores up this holiness. His holiness absorbs, atones for all of our sin. God nails our sin to the cross. He takes it. Jesus gets our sin, he extinguishes it, he absorbs it, he satisfies it, he removes it. As Spurgeon says, he drinks damnation dry. It's gone, it's no more. It's removed as far as the east is from the west. And then all of his actual righteousness, not merely as God, but as a perfect man, is now given 
put on us. So our sin is put on him and his righteousness is put on us by faith because we've been made alive. We have a new heart and now the first breath of that new heart is trusting in Jesus. We stand before God and we say, not because of what I have done, but because of what he, your son, has done. And when we put our faith in Jesus, which is the result of the new heart, faith Righteousness is credited to us, Jesus' righteousness, that he actually, think about this, all of Jesus' actual law-abiding perfect obedience is now deposited in your account. That's what's going on here. He summarizes it in Romans chapter 5. Romans is a pretty good book of the Bible. I don't know if you guys, come on. Romans 5, verse 17, and he's making this analogy. He's basically saying, look, there's, there's two heads. There's two ways of living. In sin or in Christ. In Adam or in Christ. All of us are represented by, by a head. A head of the race. A, a chief of our tribe. Whether it's Adam and our sin and our, our fallenness, or it's Christ and our salvation and our grace. And he says, Romans 5, verse 17, For if, because of one man's trespass, Adam, the sin, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through that one man, Jesus Christ. Look at the second half of that sentence again. What we receive from Jesus' obedience is grace. That's a result of his passive obedience. He dies to remove God's penalty from us. But we don't just get the forgiveness of sins. We get the free gift of righteousness, which is imputed to the Christian so that when God looks at them, he sees, this is stunning, he sees the righteousness, the perfect righteousness of his son. So what's the summary? What's the summary of this? I think this is an important sentence. I think this is true. And I think this is what the writer of Hebrews means by the obedience of Christ being the eternal source of our salvation. Here's the sentence. Here's the summary. We are saved by Jesus' living as much as by his dying. We are saved by Jesus' living as much as we are by his dying. In fact, we can't parse those two things out. They go together. The obedience of Christ is not merely his dying on the cross, as glorious and central as that is to the Christian life, but it's also by his living. Because we will stand before God someday, and listen to this, this is not something we say, but we probably should say it more often. We need more than the forgiveness of sins to be with God forever. We need the righteousness of Christ. So salvation is not just taking away of guilt. It's the giving of righteousness in Christ. Okay. Let me end with this. A couple thoughts. How does this help us? You're like, well, Brad, I see this, but how does this help me? 
on a Tuesday? It's a good question. Well, the first thing I want to say how this helps us is I just want to make a point here to all of us just to remind us, maybe to some of us who have never heard the gospel along these lines or the truth of Scripture or what Jesus has done along these lines, I want you to know that first, this is, this is, just the, it's, this is the only way to be saved. I'm not saying you need to know all this in order to be a Christian. I mean, the thief on the cross, you think he knew much about doctrine? You know, he's just like, man, I'm a mess. I'm going to stand before my creator. My hope is in him. And if you, listen, let's not overcomplicate the Christian life, all right? The deeper we go into just kind of doctrinal truths, it can, I don't want it to have a reverse effect on you. I don't want it to say, oh my gosh, well, you don't, don't complexify. I don't even know if that's a word, but you know what I'm talking about. Don't overcomplicate it. Listen, the good news of the gospel is not that you have to know deep truths or doctrine or that you really have to understand Hebrews or Romans. Those things are wonderful things to do, and I think you should make it part of your life's pursuit no matter what your vocation is but here's the good news of the gospel is that you know that God is holy that you're a sinner and your only hope is the righteousness of Christ and if you will turn from trusting in yourself and put your hope in him you will be saved friends that's a beautiful glorious truth grab a hold of that but know this that this good news of Christ and his life and his death and his resurrection is the only way that you can be made right with your creator, your maker, your God. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So let's not forget that. Listen, in this, in this world, in this culture of plurality, where people are offering all of these other false saviors, young people, old people, middle-aged, all Christians, let's never lose sight of the fact that Jesus is the only way. His life, his righteousness, his death, he took away my sin, he gave me his righteousness. That's the only way to live with the Lord forever. Secondly, how does this help us? And I think this is really important, although it may not have these practical, pragmatic benefits, but I think, I think life is so much more than that. I think you're made for more. Secondly, is it just helps us, if we remember this, it helps us worship God more earnestly, to be more thankful for Him. The deeper we see into what God has done for us, it, has a, it should have a, a stirring of our heart. The, the more we know what somebody has, just on a human level, the more we know what somebody has done for us in some act of kindness or grace, the deeper our gratitude and thankfulness is to that person. Well, if that's true on a human level, how much more true on a spiritual heavenly level? One of the great battles of the Christian life is just remembering the gospel and not just seeing it as the beginning of the Christian life, but going deeper and more gratitude and appreciation to what Christ has done so that we can grow in grace and gratitude towards God. And when you see these truths, you, you, it should help to make your life more centered on God you're more in awe of it, and it, it becomes the blazing center of your existence, and you, you're just one of these type of people who can't 
get over God's goodness in your life. And it never gets old. It's never blasé. And as a result, as a result, you're more of a fragrance for him. You, you sing louder. You, you want to read his word more. You care more about other people. You spend less time thinking about yourself. And there's just this kind of godwardness to your life that then he uses in a thousand inconceivable ways to bless you and encourage you and use you for the good of other people. It just helps us worship him more earnestly. But thirdly and finally, and this is the, the real link I end with this, is that if we see this, the, the obedience of Christ, remember, let's, let's zoom back out, the obedience of Christ, his actual living, his obedience, that then he lays down, that then becomes satisfaction, it becomes the propitiation, it becomes what God has pleased his obedience vindicates, it, it, it takes God's wrath, it satisfies it, and now our sin is taken away and his actual righteous living is given to us. How does that help us practically day to day? Well, friends, if we see this, I think it will help us fight our remaining sin, particularly, I think this is one of the great spiritual obstacles of our age particularly the fear of man. Okay, so in one sense, in one sense, I think all sin springs from disordered affections. We want satisfaction or we want approval in other things. And so even after we become a Christian, we forget the gospel and we find ourselves drifting, and as the proverb says, kind of like a dog returning to his vomit, we sort of drift back into seeking affirmation in other things other than God. And in a sense, whether it's money, sex, or power, or social acceptance, all of our sin, all of our disobedience, even after the Christian life, in some sense, springs from, do you, see the, do you see the link here? It springs from us forgetting the satisfaction and the contentment that should spring in our hearts from reveling in and resting in and being satisfied by how God sees us and what God thinks of us in Christ because of what Christ has done. We're seeking significance in other things other than God because we have forgotten how wonderfully, how indescribably God loves us in Christ. I think that's the fight of sin. Is how does God see me and is my heart satisfied in that, and if it isn't, I will seek some counterfeit pleasure, something that is a kind of substitute for God. But if I can see, if I can see, do you see how this is connected? If I can see how Christ, how God sees me in Christ, and if I can stay there, and if I can gather with other Christians who are fighting the same fight, and if I can remind them, and they can remind me, and we can encourage one another to get our head above the muck and the mire, it serves as motivation and fuel and ammonia for our forgetful, punch-drunk 
brains to remember who we are in Christ. Think about this. You can never, if you're a Christian, you can never be loved more or less than you are right now in God because of Christ. And I want to admit something to you. Uh, this is easy to preach. It's much harder to live. Let's just admit it. Can we just say, okay, I, I, hope, I hope all of you agree with this on some level. But I want to just sort of paint the elephant in the room. Are we all not so wired to seek relevance, satisfaction, acclaim, esteem, and other things? Come on, follow me. That in one sense, theoretically, we all agree with what I'm saying, but practically, it's just really, really hard to, to, to actually feel that way. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, who's going who's gonna to say, well, Brad, I don't agree that we should be satisfied in God alone. Nobody's going to stand up and say that. We all see that. We all sort of see that spiritually, theoretically in the clouds. But we are so... We have developed such a taste. Our flesh is so powerful that the gap between that spiritual truth that floats up in the clouds and what we actually experience in our days is the gap can be, it can be as big as the Grand Canyon at times. Do you know, has anybody, anybody else experienced this in any way? Okay, thank you. One honest brother here. Thank you very much. A couple other heads. Do you think, first of all, I want to, do you think other Christians haven't experienced this all through the ages? Of course they have. Do you think that God didn't know this? Of course he does. Do you think that God has not given us, he's not given us means of grace to fight against this? Yes, he has. Yes, he has. And friends, like everything else in life, it takes work, it takes effort, it takes striving, it takes falling down six times, but rising seven. It takes fighting sin and getting punched in the face and at times going back to your vomit, but coming to brothers and sisters and being real and honest and saying, I'm still struggling. Would you pray for me? I need to confess my sin. Help me. Help me. Help me. It takes us being sympathetic. To, it takes us creating a church culture where it's okay to be real about the gap. Do you see that? Come on, friends. It's so easy to do church. We can sing cool songs. We, have, we got clean carpet now. You guys are going to mess it up in a couple months, but we have clean carpet now. You know? Got a nice building. I know the air conditioner's loud. We got to, all these things. But it can become our heart's can find, like, okay, I'm checking this block spiritually, and yes, I say the right thing sort of externally and publicly. I give verbal confession just enough to keep the people around me at bay. But in reality, friends, deep in our hearts, we're, we're longing, we're seeking for satisfaction in the world or in the opinion of men. Friends, if you are there, and friends, by the way, I know exactly what that feels like. 
I know exactly what that feels like, not because of 14 years ago, but because of three days ago. I mean, we live in this, don't we? And this, this truth, this truth that the obedience of Christ, and that I can be with other people, and I can be real about it, and I know that he died for me, but that somehow in a way that I haven't quite hold on, grabbed a hold on, the righteousness, the obedience of Christ is mine. And when God looks at me right now, even in my worst moment, even in my most hypocritical moment, even in my most shameful moment, he sees me in one sense, yes, he can be angry with me, but in another sense, I do not fall one iota from the goodness and the favor and the grace of God because he sees me in Christ. And when I'm in the middle of that pit of my shame, I grab a hold of with a bunch of other real Christians around me, I grab a hold of and remind myself of Christ's obedience for me and how God sees me. And, 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 and I start to... I start to try over my life to tune, to tune my heart away from longing for these false pleasures and developing a taste for true pleasure in Christ. That's the Christian life. Weaning our tastes from the junk fruit of this world and longing for the nutrients of the gospel of grace. And friends... That's what we are here for, not to play church, not to just accrue doctrine, sing faithful songs, have a nice place. We're here to worship and glorify God by humbling ourselves, admitting the gap, and linking arms and doing life with each other. Can we? Let's do that. Let's do that. Let me pray. Uh, Lord, we need you, Lord. We need this. We need, would you, um, Lord, by grace, by grace, would you, would like a mighty rushing wind with the Holy Spirit um, now just come into this place and just there's people in this room that are proud, they're scared, they, they're playing church they're playing the christian life and there's a massive gap between what they say and what's actually going on in their hearts and lives lord right now would you narrow that gap by your grace lord would would that person not leave this building today before they do business with your grace, before they see you face to face, before they get real with God? Would they do that? Please, please, please. I need that. And I suspect many, many of my friends in this room need it too. Lord, as we sing and as we pray, meet us. Do things in our heart that only you can do. Lord, please, please, may we get real with you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.